If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 1, pick up where we left off last week. Um, this, is a, this is a very straightforward text. And on the surface, it, it appears like maybe, you know, it's something that we're all familiar with. Don't gloss over this. I believe that the Lord has given me a word for each one of us in here today. If you're married, this word is for you. If you're single, this word is for you. If you're divorced, this word is for you. If you're young or old, this word is for you. At some point in your life, we all are touched by what takes place uh, in our lives and what the word is addressing for us today. We're going to talk about marriage and divorce. And I've, I've titled this sermon today, Made to Last. Made to Last. Interesting time. Interesting timing of God. And Carl, or someone back there, can, can someone bring me some water? It's pretty dry in here. I want to make sure that I don't get, dis get distracted by not being able to, to talk. I hold in my hand a certificate of permission from the state of Nevada to perform the wedding ceremony for my daughter, Tia Latrell McCormick, and Ashton Lamar Ridley next Saturday at Caesars Palace. Yeah. You have no idea what it took to get this, man. It cost me a lot of money to get this right, because I, I meant that the state of Nevada, if you don't, if you miss dotting one I or crossing one T, they send the whole thing back, and you got to start all over again. So, so that came, that, that, was a, that was an act of labor on, on daddy's part to make that happen. But my daughter's getting married next week, and man, the, it's a great, the guy's a great guy, man. He's, he's amazing. They don't make him very much, very much like that. <laughs> Let, let, me, let me see how much like Jesus you are, man. See if you can turn this water into wine. <laughs> I asked for some water to the brother. For those of you listening via podcast, he brings me a wine glass. Wow. I love you, Carl. He's a great guy, man. You know, I've talked to him on several occasions and um, and then I, I went down to Vegas to visit my daughter, my wife and I did, and we met him down there. Uh, but he won me over when, he won us over. Amen, yeah, yeah, yeah. He won us over when he flew up to Alaska and sat down with me and asked me for my daughter's hand in marriage. I said, man, they don't make guys like this very often anymore. It's a great guy. Love him. So we talked about marriage. We, we, we pre-marital counseled him. And, and I asked him, and so did Pelzetta, I said, man, do you know what you are doing? <laughs> because on two fronts, first of all, marriage in itself is, is not an easy thing. And, and second, my daughter is not an easy person to live with. I love her. She's, she's amazing, man, but she is a handful. Do you know what you are doing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, high standards for dad, for sure. 
You know, and, and, and I feel like I'm pretty qualified to talk about marriage because Pelzetta and I next month are going to be celebrating our 36th wedding anniversary. Yeah. Anybody else in here been married for 36 years? 39. Right on, 39. Well, I have the mics, but I, so I'm the resident expert today. Man, I thought I thought I was gonna I thought I was gonna be the one today, but 39, congratulations. Yeah, and so and so you know we we I'm, I'm pretty I feel kind of qualified to talk about about marriages. Marriage, man, marriage is something. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I first got married, we found out eight years into our marriage that four couples that we knew got together and placed bets on how long we would stay married. Look, it ranged anywhere from two weeks. They didn't have very much faith in a brother, I tell you. From two weeks to two years, that was it. From two weeks to two years, man. Because it just didn't feel like we had what it took to have a successful marriage. But we do. But the tragedy is, family, that the majority of marriages in our country will end up in divorce. The majority of them will. And most of them will end up in divorce within the first seven years. And one recent study shows that only three out of ten marriages are considered happy marriages. And why is that? It's not because people don't want a happy marriage. It's that everybody wants a happy marriage. No one goes into a marriage saying, I don't think I want a happy marriage. I think I'll make my life miserable by marrying this person. No, that's not the problem. Everyone wants a happy marriage. The problem is that most couples don't want to do the work that it takes to remain married. And when couples don't want to do the work, the likely result is going to be divorce. We compound the problem by making divorce too easy in this country, man. In some cases, honestly, in some cases, it's easier to get a divorce in this country than to get a reimbursement on a warranty claim. It's true. And I can't tell you how many times I've had premarital counseling with couples, and the first thing out of their mouth is, man, we're going to give this a shot, Pastor Greg, but guess what? If this doesn't work out for whatever reason, divorce is an option for me. And when I hear that in premarital counseling, I shut the conversation down right there. But th th here's the issue. The divorce has become our way of life. It's become our way of not dealing with the reality that at times marriage is tough work. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Another tragedy is that our society has learned to treat divorce like a movie on a DVR. You know how you get a DVR and you, you get your movie and, you know, or better yet, you know, the Steelers will be playing in about a few minutes, you know. So, so. So you get, you, you get home, you watch the game, right? And you're watching the game and you get to that spot on the game or you get to that spot in the movie that you don't really like that much so you fast forward past that part. And if you continue to fast forward, you'll fast forward all the way to the end of the movie and that's the end. Some people approach life like a DVR recording that we'll get to some tough parts in our marriage and we'll fast forward past the tough parts and get to the end. But when we do that, family, the end will always be divorce. There's no fast forward in the button of life. 
But the point of this message is not divorce. Divorce simply is the subject matter that Jesus is given to express the true point of this passage. And the true point of this passage is the richness of marriage. The richness of marriage brings me to my point, the point I want you to take with you if you're married or if you anticipate getting married. God wants us to experience the richness marriage intended, the richness intended in his original design for marriage. It's on your screen. God wants us to experience the richness intended in his original design for marriage. This makes me angry when I think about this. Our world has wrote a script for us where we, we trivialize marriage. We trivialize marriage. We trivialize the most important institution that God ever created. Biblical marriage family is designed to be the most powerful symbol of oneness that we can experience on earth in our human flesh. It's what it's designed to be. The, the oneness of marriage was to be a visible and physical and spiritual representation of the Godhead in humanity. Marriage was intended to be sacred, holy, we're supposed to approach marriage with reverence and we've allowed it to be marginalized and trivialized. I believe that our mistreatment of marriage in, in this world worldwide is the leading indicator of our social woes. I know that's a strong statement, but think about it. As goes the state of the marriage union, so goes the state of our nation and our world. And this is not a new problem. As we'll see from our text today, family, this is, a, this is an old problem. This is an age-old problem. And so from our text today, I want to I give you two statements that I believe Jesus is making in our passage today. And I want to center our time around these two statements. I'll give them to you right up front. Here they are. Divorce is a symptom of a heart condition. And God made marriage to be an everlasting union. In verse 1 of our text, Jesus lands in the region of Judea, just beyond the Jordan. He's, he's there in that region. And, and, and the large crowds had gathered and, and the Pharisees had come and they ask him a question in order to test him. Now, the verb that's used here in this, in this text here is, uh, is, it indicates that they didn't just ask him the question once. It indicates that they were badgering Jesus. They, they asked him this question again and again and again. They were badgering him to incite him to some kind of emotional response. And I think that they were doing it for one of two reasons. Here's the first possible region, reason. Jesus was in the region that was ruled by Herod Antipas. And if you remember back to, to the sixth chapter of Mark, John had been slain in chapter six for preaching 
against Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And Herod had put him to death. And I think that it's possible that these, that these Pharisees recognized that Jesus was the first cousin of John the Baptist. And he had to feel some kind of way about his, his, his first cousin being put to death. And if they could just incite an emotional response from Jesus about marriage, maybe he would fall into the same fate as his first cousin. That's one reason. Here's a second. And I think this is the greater of the two possibilities. In my mind, at least, I think they are. There, there are two schools of thought on divorce that, 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 that were led by two very influential rabbis in their day. These rabbis were, were subject matter scholars, man. They were highly influential, brilliant men. Two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. The school of Shammai was more conservative and stated that, that the only justifiable reason for divorce or grounds for divorce was adultery. The school of Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Any reason, man. Look, sister gets up in the morning, doesn't cook your breakfast like she's supposed to, divorce. She don't comb her hair the way you like it, divorce. If, if she tries to defend herself and, and offer her position on an issue, divorce. For any reason at all, divorce. Hmm. In the mind of the Pharisees, if they could get Jesus to answer this question on either side, if they could get him to answer in an emotional way, they would trap him. They would trap him because Israel was already, or, or, or yeah, Israel was already divided on, this, on these two schools of thought. But in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer their question directly. Instead, he answers their question with a question. What did Moses command you? And then in verse 4, they said to him, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So let me go back. Here's what they were referring to. They were referring to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning at verse 1, where the law was written requiring a, a certificate of divorce in order for a man to divorce a woman. Prior to the law of Moses, as I said, a man could divorce his wife for just by just a mere word and send her packing. And she'd have no recourse. And she'd be ineligible for marriage. And so Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law of Moses. Everybody say Moses. Moses, Moses wrote this law. I'll talk about the, the significance of that in a minute. The law of Moses offered protection for the helpless wife because without the bill of divorcement, the woman would be left defenseless and destitute and likely forced into prostitution just to survive. So in verse 5, Jesus says to them, it wasn't like this always. This bill of divorce was given because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. Listen, God made them equal. That's what Jesus was saying. But he was saying something else. Because implicit in this statement is Jesus saying, you are asking the wrong question. 
You're focusing on divorce. You're focusing on what you can get away with or what the law permits. You're asking the wrong question. You're basing your question on divorce, and divorce is not the problem. Divorce is merely the symptom of the problem. There's a greater problem. In his book, The God-Shaped Brain, man, I recommend you get this book and you read it. It's pretty amazing. Christian psychiatrist Dr. Timothy Jennings uses an example that I've modified his example, but I want to give him credit for it because it is powerful. He says this about the greater problem. Imagine you were born with a congenital heart disease. Sometime after birth, you begin experiencing shortness of breath. And so you go to your doctor, and instead of diagnosing congenital heart failure, he diagnoses you with shortness of breath. Would shortness of breath be the disease or the symptom of the disease? Obviously, it's the symptom. But what if the doctor treated you with Prevental or Advir or Singular for shortness of breath and nothing more? Would you get well? Of course not. And why not? Because the, the, the disease is not being treated, just the symptoms. In order for you to get well, you have to correctly diagnose the problem and then treat the underlying illness, not just the symptoms. Jesus was saying that the certificate of divorce, the bill of divorce, and the subsequent divorce are not the problem. They are the symptoms of the problem. Divorce is the result of a sin-sick heart. And the reason that the law was designed was to treat the results of a sin-sick heart. What Jesus is saying is that you misdiagnosed the problem here. The issue isn't whether or not Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife. The issue is a hard heart that leads to bad choices. And the truth is, you've misdiagnosed the problem for so long that you've created a system designed to treat the symptoms rather than looking at God's remedy to heal the true underlying illness. Wow. Wow. Let me ask you a question. What questions are you asking God about your marriage? Are you struggling in some aspect of your marriage? What questions are you asking God about your marriage? Are you asking the right questions? Or are you asking questions hoping for a desired outcome that feels good or fits where you believe that you're going in your marriage? Hmm. God is able to heal whatever the underlying illness is in your marriage if you bring the problem to him. Amen? Amen. So the question is not what God says about divorce. The question is what does God say about marriage? What is God's original design for marriage? God's original intent from the beginning was for us to experience goodness and oneness in the marriage relationship. Brings me to my second point. God's design for marriage is, is a permanent bond, an everlasting union. That's his design. 
Let's pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 10. It says, Jesus speaking again. He says, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, listen, if Jesus says the two shall be one flesh, and he says it twice, should we pay attention? He says, he says, the two shall become one. It's these three verses. In these three verses, Jesus reaches back to Genesis 24. And then after quoting it, he makes this statement. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Implicit in that statement is this. Just as the triune God who made marriage is inseparably one in essence, so he has attended, intended for man and woman in marriage to become inseparably one. Not two people doing their own thing. Come on now. But one in essence. And if you back up a little bit, if you back up in, in, in Genesis and go to, back up to the 18th chapter, God makes, or 18th verse, God makes this statement, 18th verse of chapter 2. You guys flowing with me? Everybody say, slow down, Pastor. Slow down, Pastor. Thank you very much. I believe I will. I didn't think y'all wanted to get out of here until 2.30 today anyway. I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. See, eyes glossing over and said, no. In, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. God had given a man a command. He, he, had, he had brought all the animals to him. Adam saw uh, all the animals two by two, man. Uh, there was a male and a female, and, and he didn't have nobody. And God said, it's not good for that brother to be alone. I need to make a helper fit for him. <laughs> wow. I want to go back to the book by Dr. Timothy Jennings, and I want, to, I want to tell you what he says about God saying that it's not good to be alone. And God said it's not good for, be, for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Sadly, though, throughout history, far too many people have interpreted this text to mean the woman was made to be Adam's helper just to carry his tools, to clean his clothes, to cook his meals. But this is wrong. Sin, not God, called, caused this horrible subjugation of women throughout the earth's history. The creator's design was very, very different. The human race was created in God's image to love like God loves. It was not good for Adam to be alone because Adam could not enter the fullness of God-like love without someone for Adam to serve without someone for Adam to sacrifice himself for, without someone to whom Adam could give himself. Eve was created to be the recipients of Adam's selfless love. Selfless love. And after receiving that love, return it freely in the other-centered way of giving. Adam could never fully live without Eve to whom he could give himself in loving service. And it was God's design through this powerful, other-centered giving that two shall become one, one in heart, one in mind, one in purpose, one in devotion and loyalty, one circle of perpetual love. 
For this cause will a man leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. Leave and cleave. I love, that's what the King James Version says. Leave and cleave. And so to leave this union meant to tear each other apart. Wow. So I have an illustration for you. It's a brand new town, man. I just bought this town. It's kind of nice. Don't you think? Yeah, I, 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 you know what I started to do? I started to bring the Steeler terrible towel, but I thought you guys would, would you know, probably boycott and say, oh, Ty. Ty said, rejoice. Yeah, but this towel is made out of, a, it's made out of um, cotton and lots of different threads and fibers woven into one single fabric. Everybody say, one single fabric. That's what this is. It's one single piece. When divorce happens in our life, <laughs> don't do it, Pastor, don't do it. When we, oh man, okay, God, you can only give me one thing at a time. I can only handle one thing at a time, Lord, please. Listen. Satan is, it's like, Satan is like, he's, what? What? Okay, listen, man, Satan wants nothing more than to act like the person that, that, that wants to divide us. And, and, and like, I have this knife in my hand. Take this knife and in the fabric of our marriage, cut a hole in it and just start ripping it. Just tearing us apart at the very fabric of our relationship. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Because what's represented in this towel is a garment that's supposed to be whole. Divorce tears that oneness union into two. And this towel can never be the same Again, not the way that it was originally designed. There will always be a scar no matter how much you try to mend it. There will always be a scar. And so, so it is with divorce, man. Tears at the very fabric of who we are. And leaving the marriage union means to tear each other apart. And not just each other, but our families that are involved with us, the people who we know, the friends who love us. The implication is that, is that a marriage, if a person leaves it, leaves others torn apart as well, not only themselves. So the commandment to marriage is, is a commandment to selflessness. I believe marriage is a gift from God that is designed to grow us out of our selfishness to a place of selflessness. Marriage is divinely appointed to be a spiritual and a 
physical and emotional union designed to permanently protect and cultivate love within the human heart. That's the design, God's design for marriage. Now I want to spend the last few moments of our time together talking about the last two verses of this chapter. Let me read this, of our text. Let me read this for you. Verses 10 and 11 will be on your screen as well. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she deceives her husband or divorces her husband, <laughs> deceives her husband. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Many people feel that this writing in Mark's gospel is considered to be unfriendly to women. But let me, let me just, man, let me raise something for you to see from this passage. These are radical words that Mark is speaking in the, in the Jewish world. The words, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, was not common in Jewish society. As a matter of fact, it was a new it was a new concept. In Jewish society, women could commit adultery against their husband. A man could commit adultery against another man by having a relationship with his wife. But a man could not commit adultery against his wife. So what is Jesus doing here? He's leveling the playing field. He's raising the status of women. He's raising the status of what it means to be a wife in that culture. He's bringing back the equity and the equality of marriage that was designed by God for marriage from the very beginning. Now make no mistake about it, Jesus is not allowing for unfaithfulness in marriage here. He's not doing that. He makes it very clear in this passage that any sexually deviant behavior is intolerable, intolerable in the marriage, period. Everybody say period. Now, we have kids in here, so I'm not going to go into great detail, um, and, and normally I would. But suffice it to say that Matthew goes into a greater detail, I believe in Matthew chapter 19, where he talks about sexual immorality in the marriage. And, what, and that word immorality in the Greek is the word por, uh, pornea. It's where we get, you can imagine, all the kind of words, right? And that word covers Every act of immorality, everything, websites, books, looks, thoughts, all of it. Everybody say all of it. All of it. Do I need to say any more? Okay. <laughs> so Jesus wasn't giving us a pass. What he was doing, he was elevating the status of women so that they could enjoy the richness of marriage free of fear of being treated unequally. That's powerful. I want to close today by offering five broader realities from this text that can be applied right now in your life, whether you're single, married, or divorced or widowed. Are they up there? Let me read them. If you're married, fight for your marriage. Everybody say, fight for it. Fight for and, it. Not about it. and not about it. 
spend a lot of time fighting about things in marriage. If you know what I mean, you married people say amen. amen. I didn't think I was the only one. No, 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 man, no, no. I said it earlier, I want to say it again. Marriage is the most sacred institution. It is the most important institution designed by God that we can experience in this earth realm. Fight for it. Do everything you can to cultivate it. Do everything you can to make it thrive. As it relates to marriages, the best way to not have a heart condition is to keep your heart healthy. Healthy hearts equal healthy marriages. Here's a second. Beware of Satan's deception. Satan hates marriage. He hates marriage. And he will oppose marriage at every turn. He understands how a good, healthy marriage models the Trinity and the oneness of the Trinity. He understands it. And so if you think that he opposed God's authority, God's authority, and marriage is God-like, what do you think he will do to oppose you if you are married? The strength of a healthy family, the strength of a healthy nation is found in healthy marriages. Here's the third. God's forgiveness covers every sin ever committed. 1 John 1 and 9. And so I wanted to say this earlier, but I want to, but I really, please hear me. If you're divorced, I want you to hear me. Even if you've been divorced for the wrong reasons, God's mercy and grace covers that. All you have to do is repent and seek forgiveness, even if you're the healthy party. 1 John 1 and 9 covers that. And I want to say this here because, because, because I just want to say it, and I'm not getting in the flesh either. You know, I get angry when I hear about how the church treats people who have experienced divorce. I was having a conversation with a man that I'm growing to love dearly, man, and, and he was telling me about the peril of a friend of his and, and how the dude was completely ostracized from the church and kicked out of ministry essentially because he, he, had a, he got a divorce. Man, help me, Lord. If people are going to experience the love of Jesus Christ, for every facet of relationship in humanity, they're going to have to experience it in us and through us, the church. No matter what they've gone through, we owe no man nothing but to love them through their trial and through their situation. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Jesus said, if you are without sin, you cast the first stone. I think it was Paul that wrote, he said, man, don't think that any murderers and idolaters and fornicators and all those other kind of cats are going to make it into heaven. They're going to they're enter the kingdom of God. And then he said this, and such were some of you and me, but we've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Don't forget that. And then Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone of you is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, say spiritual. spiritual. 
You who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the fourth. The aftermath and pain of pain and divorce is always greater than you can anticipate. Man, divorce unleashes more shrapnel into relationships than you can ever realize until you either go through one or you walk with someone through one. And so I want to caution you, be led by the Holy Spirit when you're approaching people who are having marital difficulties, especially if you're married yourself. Because, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I'm going to lay it on you because it's the truth right out of Scripture. Be careful because that same spirit of divorce that is trying to get on them can jump on you. I'm constantly praying. My wife and I are constantly praying over each other in every venue we enter into and in every venue we allow people to enter into with us. We are constantly praying over ourselves. So be careful. Be led by the Holy Spirit when you engage someone else in their burdens and their pain. And finally, be very careful how you share your pain and who you share your pain with if you're going through a painful experience. James is very clear in James chapter 5, verse 16. He says, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. You want to open the door for more pain and difficulty in your life? Start confessing your faults to more than one or two or three people. Because every time you do, you open the door and the opportunity for that thing to become less private and less about the situation and more about you. And that's how gossip starts. That's how hurt begins. And often we in the church are, are the, 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 the biggest culprits. Hmm. Someone has the confidence to come and share with you what they're going through. Keep it to yourself. Be a person of confidentiality. And if you're going through a problem, the scripture is clear. The best way, the best way to find healing is to confess that thing to God and find someone else that you can trust to discuss that with. Be careful who and how you discuss your problems with. Amen? Amen. You guys get something out of this today? Yeah. Amen. Will you stand to your feet?